We now turn to Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're dealing successively with articles of our Christian faith and now focusing on what scripture teaches us concerning Jesus, whom we confess is the Christ, the son of the living God. Lord's Day 12, you can find that beginning on page 527 of your book of praise. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing, so that I may, as prophet, confess his name, as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Following the ministry of the word, let's sing together. Psalm 72 stands at 10. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not a personal name. Literally, Christ means anointed. And there's a relationship here with the office of our Lord Jesus. And by the word office, we don't mean a room where he works. The word points to the work or task to which he was appointed and for which he was anointed. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you are a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You receive what he has accomplished for you on the cross, the forgiveness of your sins. But there's more. Jesus Christ works in you by the Holy Spirit who is united with him. And you become more and more one with your Savior. Christ renews you by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. And how does the renewing work of Jesus Christ affect our lives, our motives, our standard, and our goals in life change? If we are really Christians, we don't live like unbelievers. We have been united with Jesus Christ through faith. And as a result, we live as Christians, people who belong to Jesus Christ. Let's explore further what this involves. 
The theme for this afternoon is we share in the anointing of Jesus Christ. And we'll focus on two points, what his anointing means and what our anointing means. We share in the anointing of Jesus Christ, what his anointing means, and secondly, what our anointing means. Beloved, we speak of three offices in connection with Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king. And these three offices form a unity in our Savior. Christ wasn't anointed three times. He was anointed once with a view to these three offices. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove coming to rest on him. This is how he was equipped for his ministry among his people. And one aspect of his work among his people was to function as a prophet. His coming had been announced repeatedly in the Old Testament. Jesus referred to his anointing as prophet not long after his baptism in the Jordan when he visited the synagogue in Nazareth. And we just read about that. At that time, he read from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah speaks of the task given to the Messiah by God. He was authorized and sent to proclaim good news to his people. And having read this, Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In this way, he pointed to himself as the great prophet, the Messiah, the anointed one. The good news that Jesus proclaimed was the news of God's grace for repentant sinners. The Catechism describes it as the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. God's plan is called secret because before the coming of Christ, it was still unclear. No one had much insight in exactly how God intended to save his people. In 1 Peter 1, we read that the prophets in Old Testament times searched and inquired carefully to understand what they were prophesying. They tried to find out what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Things didn't become clear until Christ himself came. He proclaimed God's plan of salvation. Through many miracles that underlined his words, he proved that he was the Messiah sent by the Father. He came to reveal and fulfill. He explained what he had to suffer and die. He did this in obedience to his heavenly Father. Jesus emphasized that he was faithful in doing what the Father sent him to do. He ministered to the needs of his people and to our needs as 
our prophet. Before his death and resurrection, even his disciples didn't understand God's plan. Their preconceived notions about Jesus clouded their thinking. It wasn't until later that they grasped what he taught them. The scriptures were fulfilled. Everything had to happen the way it did. Christ has not withheld anything that we need to know for our salvation. He made it clear that his blood would be shed to atone for our sins. He also poured out the Holy Spirit on the church to renew his people and prepare them for heavenly glory. This doesn't mean, however, that we will have an easy time here on earth. God's plan of salvation takes place in the midst of the history of this world. It's a world that groans and struggles under the consequences of man's fall into sin. It's also a world that hates the truth revealed by Jesus Christ. Our redemption doesn't mean freedom from disease or pain in this world. Redemption doesn't exclude suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ either. In John 15 verse 18 we read, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. People who refused to accept the claims of Jesus Christ hated him. Think of the passage we just read. Shortly after announcing to the people of Nazareth that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and that he had been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, Jesus rebuked them for not taking his words seriously. He reminded them that Elijah was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon, and that Elisha cleansed Naam in the Syrian of his leprosy. In other words, if they would reject him, heathen people would end up being recipients of God's grace. And they were so angry at hearing these prophetic words that they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. If that's how people treated Jesus for telling them the truth, we shouldn't be surprised if we receive a hostile reaction when we make it clear to people that we belong to Jesus. God's counsel and will concerning our redemption doesn't exclude adversity. There is much sorrow in life. But there's comfort during whatever troubles we go through. Jesus Christ taught that all things are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. There's hope, even during persecution. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, says Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Salvation means that nothing in this life can separate us from God's love in Christ. Our Heavenly Father is willing and able to turn our difficulties to our good. 
Jesus Christ, our chief prophet and teacher, teaches us to look beyond the events of the day. Learn to see things with the perspective of eternity before you. And this can help you to see that the difficulties and sufferings you may experience now are temporary. He will one day also wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ is our prophet. He is also our priest. The Catechism speaks of Christ as our only high priest. In Old Testament times, there was a whole series of priests, also high priests. They were descendants of Levi. And their work foreshadowed what was to be accomplished by Christ. By means of all sorts of laws, God taught his people to respect his holiness. They couldn't take it for granted that he would dwell in the midst of sinners. They had to learn that atonement had to be made for their sins. And they needed the ministry of atonement in which the priests played an important part. Animals had to be sacrificed. And all of this pointed to the necessity of the coming of Christ, the Lamb of God. Only his sacrifice on the cross could truly wash away sin. Jesus Christ is a unique high priest. Through his ministry, an end came to the Levitical priesthood. The work of the Levites was temporary and is now past. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read that the ministry of the priests in Old Testament times was only a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Christ has taken the place of those priests. His priesthood is unique and permanent. He continues as our high priest now in heaven at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us with the Father. That means he speaks on our behalf. This is his task now. And he does it in a perfect way. Let this comfort you. When Christ pleads for you, he doesn't do this by pointing to anything worthwhile in you. His requests are based on his sacrifice on the cross. And that's the perfect and totally sufficient ground for him being heard by the Father. That's the glory of what is called the new covenant in the letter to the Hebrews. Christ, your high priest, is at the right hand of the Father. His work is the guarantee that when you pray in conformity to the will of God, your prayers will be heard. Christ is our chief prophet and teacher, as well as our only high priest. He is also our eternal king. His kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said to, the, to Pontius Pilate. And what does this mean? His kingdom is not of this world. After all, it is clear that his kingdom is in this world. 
Before ascending into heaven, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the point Jesus was making is that his kingdom is totally different from earthly kingdoms. Earthly kings reign by using earthly instruments of power. Christ reigns in a different manner. His power and authority are divine. He governs us by his word and spirit. He not only makes his will known, he equips and enables us through his spirit to obey him. And what a king we have. His power and authority extend over the whole world, not just the church. Satan can try in all sorts of ways to destroy the people of God. He can make use of oppression. He can mobilize the world with its temptations against believers. He can send false teachers to lead believers astray. He can tempt us through the weakness of our sinful nature. But if we believe in Jesus Christ and submit to his authority, we may be sure that he will defend and preserve us. Christ never promised his followers an easy life. But take comfort in having him as king. He is an eternal king. He has already gained the victory over the powers of darkness. His reign is eternally secure. And we are safe as his subjects. Eternal life is promised to whoever believes in him. Jesus Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit. After ascending into heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. This happened on the day of Pentecost. It signaled the beginning of a new phase in the history of the church. The Holy Spirit who is in Christ is also at work in us. Through the Spirit, we come to faith. And Christ also equips us to become prophets. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we read words directed to all Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When Peter speaks about proclaiming the excellencies of God, he's telling us that we are prophets. As prophets, we all have a calling to speak of God's great deeds that reveal who he is. God has called us out of the darkness of sin and death. He has called us into the light of his fellowship and gives us his word to guide us. Speaking of God's work of grace is therefore not only for ministers and other office bearers. We are all called to confess the name of Jesus Christ in this world. And how can we do that? The Bible doesn't tell us to go from door to door in our neighborhood. Such organized activities can at times be useful. But what is more important is what you do with the daily contacts 
in your lives. Do you use opportunities that the Lord gives you to speak of him? Do you speak in the light of God's word? It's a privilege to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put thought, prayer, and effort into considering how to reach out to people around you. Don't let a false sense of shame stop you. But as you speak, remember the admonition of Peter in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. You can't speak boldly of him if you don't believe that he is both Savior and Judge of the world. You can't speak with joy of him if you don't believe that through him you receive eternal life. You can't speak confidently of him if you are disobedient to him. Be ready to speak of Jesus Christ at all times. You can do it. It's not as hard as it may seem. Just keep the three basic parts of the Heidelberg Catechism in mind. Sooner or later, people go through times of crisis. Then they look for comfort, something to hold on to. They look for comfort in the troubles of this life. And when facing death, they also look for something to hold on to. You can talk to them about the comfort of belonging with body and soul, both in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you do this, keep in mind what the Catechism says in response to the question, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And especially the young people in our midst who are attending catechism classes, hopefully will be able to recite it just like this. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So keep those three themes in mind. They can help you to explain the gospel to unbelievers. When you talk about the importance of believing and repenting, then do this with gentleness and respect. As the Apostle Peter highlighted this in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Sometimes people make negative comments about Christians. And perhaps you may feel inclined to react out of irritation. Refrain from doing that. Try to find out why they say what they do. There may be feelings of disappointment about what certain Christians have done. Give room to people to express such feelings. And then ask them gently if this means that Jesus Christ himself should also be rejected. You can't always prevent people from taking offense at the contents of what you say. But you can be careful not to give unnecessary offense by how you say something. Be friendly and mild in the way you speak. Be respectful, too. Honor God both in what you say and how you say it. 
As a prophet, be careful not to let the way you live undermine the effect of what you say. Our words, as well as our deeds, should express our living bond with Jesus Christ. So make every effort to do the will of the Lord. And if you suffer for this, remember the example of our Savior. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, we read, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Holy Spirit who, depend, who descended upon Jesus Christ also rests on you. Pray for strength and wisdom to honor God even under very difficult circumstances. Christ also makes us priests. But the sacrifice we bring is not the same as his. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, atoning for our sins by dying for us on the cross. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. The Apostle Paul puts it in this way in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul points to God's mercies as the reason for offering our bodies to God. God has shown us his mercy through Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from our sins and misery. And this should move us to respond with thankfulness. That is to be our priestly sacrifice. The expression speaks of total surrender to the Lord and his service. Animal sacrifices were brought to the Lord in Old Testament times. They were surrendered to die. But we surrender ourselves to live for God. And your sacrifice to God involves your whole body, all of its parts, and all of your strength. And what you do with your body is a reflection of the attitude of your soul. Let your actions be motivated by thankfulness to God for his grace. Devote your whole existence to him. Hasn't he given you abundant reasons for this? Christ died for you on the cross. Now live for God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let your sacrifice be holy and pleasing to him. Many people live for themselves instead of for God. Our culture has self-fulfillment as a goal in life. And such thinking can infect us too. Then we put our own desires and ambitions in the foreground. And that conflicts with our priestly calling. Our goal should be to live for the glory of God. This involves self-denial. It can involve suffering. But there is joy in doing what is pleasing to him. 
And if you live in such a way, your life will form a contrast with what is usual in our society. And this results from conscious choices. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't let the world influence your way of living. Don't let peer pressure lead you to do things that you know aren't right. You know your own sins and weaknesses. It's tempting to just relax and let life go on without doing something about them. But we have a calling to serve Jesus Christ, our King. And let your mind be renewed by the Word and Spirit of God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice to him. And this doesn't mean you lose your identity. Instead, by living for him, you find the true purpose for your existence. That gives true fulfillment in life. Redeemed by Jesus Christ, your life will blossom as it should. Christ equips us and empowers us to fight as kings against sin and the devil in this life. Fight the good fight of the faith. That's what Paul once said to Timothy. And doesn't this also apply to each one of us? Do you have a militant faith? Are you striving to live for God? Are you doing what you can to preserve a good and free conscience in his service? Or is your life full of spiritual compromises and self-justification? Don't let circumstances in your life lull you to sleep. Don't become complacent thinking you might be safe. When you are complacent, you rest easy thinking that everything is going well. You don't see the need to be on your guard against temptations. You think you can handle things. At such times, it's easy to slip into doing things that are questionable. If you remain passive or are sliding back in your faith instead of moving forward, you're neglecting to obey Christ, your King. You're ignoring his marching orders. You are failing to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Don't act like a deserter in the spiritual war we are called to wage. Instead, be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. Fight against the devil, the world, and your own evil inclinations. The Apostle Peter warns us in particular against the devil. The devil can marshal the forces of the world and our own evil inclinations, pitting them against us to cause us to fall. Don't underestimate those enemies. The Apostle Peter learned by experience how quickly this can happen. Think of the night when he betrayed Jesus. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, we therefore read a strong warning. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Whoever doesn't keep this in mind is very vulnerable. The devil is hungry for prey. He can drag you to your death if you don't struggle against sin and the devil himself. The devil waits to strike at a moment when you are not on guard. Watch out. Resist him, says Peter, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The struggle may not be easy. And take comfort from knowing that you're not alone. Every Christian who takes his or her faith seriously knows of this fight of the faith. Keep trusting in the Lord and obeying his word. If you suffer for the faith, keep the long-term perspective in mind. The strugglings and suffering now may seem endless, but they will pass. You have an eternity of heavenly peace and joy ahead of you. Christ, your king, remains in full control of the circumstances. In your struggles, he is also at work. If you trust in him, be assured that he is at your side. He won't let you be vanquished. He will preserve you. We have a redeemer, Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. Look to him in faith and rejoice. Through him, we may be sure of the final victory. Amen.